0: thank you and welcome uh, to today's event, uh, Perspectives on a Trade War, Um, you know. (laughs) Changes
1: by the moment. That's uh, (laughs) that's right, it
0: does change by the moment. We figured, you know, everything these days has to have a little uh, search engine optimization, so we had to get trade war in the title there somehow, Uh, and China, Uh, so uh, it it was uh, an interesting. China, not China. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. for those of you new to the American Security Project, uh, just a, a brief introduction. We are a nonpartisan national security think tank, uh, approaching 15 years old, 14 years old, I think. Uh, we uh, we were started by a bipartisan group of senators and former senators: Kerry, uh, Hagel, Hart, and Rudman. Uh, joined our board and they uh, asked us uh, to uh, look at national security from a long-term fact-based perspective. Uh, Our board includes a number of retired uh, senior admirals and generals, national security leaders uh, from um, both sides. Uh, We try to keep a national security perspective on everything we do. And that's everything from you know, today we're talking about trade to more traditional national security issues like war and peace in the Middle East and and all these sorts of things to energy security, climate change, um, uh, nuclear nonproliferation, public diplomacy, all these sorts of things. Um, we, uh, uh, I should note, too, today is uh, going to be our last event here in this space. We're, we're moving down to uh, 1201 Pennsylvania on, on June 1st, so update your, your address books and everything. We're excited about it, and, and they, they also have a great event space there. Uh, we'll be uh, uh, hosting plenty of events there, so, so look for our, our emails there. Um, in today's event, we're going to talk about perspectives on a trade war. Kind of, What's the background uh, between the US and China trade relationship? What's the current status? And what are the prospects from the future? Um, I'm going to quickly kind of lay out a, a baseline on what ASP believes on this. Uh, and then I'm going to hand it over to our speakers uh, who have, have much more detail and, and knowledge and, and uh, awareness on this than, than I do. Um, but basically, what ASP say, thinks and believes is that trade builds peace and security. There's clear evidence, for example, that uh, I think a lack of conflict in East Asia since 1979. Uh, there hasn't been an interstate war in, in Asia, East Asia since uh, you know the uh, Chinese Vietnamese um, uh, border, border wars there. Um, is so that that lack of war is linked to increased trade both within the region and globally. There's also clear evidence that countries that grow from trade are less likely to go to war. Now this doesn't hold for countries that that grow from exporting resources. It grows from countries that invest and grow from from trade and openness. Uh, So for these reasons at its base we believe a free and open trading system which the US created and led for over 70 years is a good thing. But one of the things that we'll be exploring today is what happens when a country takes advantage of that system. So I think it's clear that uh, China has tested this throughout its economic rise. Um, It has been, ironically, both a supporter of a liberal open trading system without a liberal open economy. So does that mean, uh, I think maybe it's gotten away with it for so long because it's so big and so crucial to so many uh, businesses uh, and uh, so crucial to other other big geopolitical issues that maybe it hasn't been challenged for a long time. Uh, Now, ASP, we worry about tariffs and trade wars. Um, They're both bad economics, uh, and I think they're worse geopolitics. You can't ask for... Action in other areas when you're harming a country's economy. Um, and you know, certainly with t- tensions in the South China Sea, North Korea issues and, and a litany of other geopolitical issues in, in East Asia, um, it's really quite important. Uh, that's, that's the baseline. that's where we're starting from. Uh, with that, I'm going to get out of our way. Our two speakers today, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll briefly introduce them. Um, Ivan Schlager uh, is going to be our first speaker. Uh, he's head of Skadden, ARP, Slate, Meager, and Flom's uh, Cifius practice. represents a diverse group of clients ranging from defense companies, major telecom providers, and media and tech companies. Um, before joining Skadden, uh, Ivan served as Democratic Chief Counsel and Staff Director to the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. He really is one of the, the leading, uh, if not the leading, Cepheus lawyer uh, in the country.
2: Uh, I wrote a statute. I didn't think it was going to pay for my children's education, but it worked out okay. <laughs> there, there you go. Um, uh, Carolyn
0: Bartholomew is vice chairman of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Uh, she's worked at senior levels in the U.S. Congress, serving as counsel, legislative director, and chief of staff to now House Democratic Leader Nancy Pelosi. She was a professional staff member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and also served as a legislative assistant to then U.S. Representative One Bill Richards. <laughs> Uh, In addition to U.S.-China relations, her areas of expertise include terrorism, trade, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, human rights, U.S. foreign assistance uh, programs, and international environmental issues. I think you you should come work for us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She's a consultant to nonprofit organizations and also serves on the board of directors of the Kaiser Aluminum Corporation. With that, I'm going to turn it over to, to Ivan. He, he's going to give remarks for as long as he wants, and then we'll yeah. have, and then <laughs> uh, and then Carol and you talk for a while, and 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 then we'll uh, uh, have some some discussion, and hopefully open it out to uh, to the audience here.
2: Well, I appreciate being here, and really delighted to be at ASP. I've been following the work over the years. General Cheney does a terrific job, um, and brings something to the table and so desperately need it right now in our discourse, which is bipartisanship. So We try to. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, as I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking about the uh, great Obama line and the debate with Romney. The 1980s called and they want their uh, policy back. Well, the 1980s have called and they want their trade policy back. Right. I started to get into this and was involved in drafting Exxon Florio, which was part of the Trade and Competitiveness Act in 1988. So a number of our Chinese clients that we deal with or when we're in transactions on the other side of the Chinese, they're absolutely convinced that this is some measure that was drafted to address China. And this was something that was part of a comprehensive trade strategy that included and, and Bob Lighthizer is adopting this today, you know, using 301 unilaterally to crack markets open like the Japanese market, uh, creating a, a creating Semitec, creating an institution that was going to help preserve a critical component of our defense industrial base, and then almost as an afterthought, the Commerce Committee's amendment to the Trade Act of 88, the Exxon Florio Amendment which was designed to look at the implications regarding foreign investment that could potentially threaten or impair our defense industrial base. And it's evolved over the years towards from looking at what we considered targeting by Japan, keeping their domestic market closed, um, and then using the relative openness of the US market to acquire skills and technology. Uh, And it evolved from focused on Japan, focused on European aerospace and defense companies, many of whom were state-owned, and had a slight competitive advantage and access to capital, to where we are today, which is focused on the competitive impacts related to china who is operating under i would say you mentioned earlier a rules-based system they're operating under a different set of rules Mm you know they have a different economic structure some of which um, mirrors um, our system and some of which is where they've taken a play a page out of the japanese playbook of working hand in glove between Government and industry to target certain sectors. Like, if you look at the China 2025 plan, they have sectors that they clearly targeted, and then through their investment policy, trying to go and acquire skills. Mm-hmm. And so, a number of the problems that we face, very similar to what we were trying to address in the 80s. I think the biggest, from my perspective, the single biggest difference is, you know, back in the 80s and the tail end of the Cold War, you had Russia was a strategic competitor, but not an economic competitor. Mm -hmm. Japan was an economic competitor, not a strategic competitor. And you have with China this turbocharged economy that's also a a strategic competitor. And what I think the Congress is struggling with today is how do you update our system, our rules that um, cover foreign investment? to address both a strategic and economic competitor who may be using subsidized capital to target certain industries to gain skills and technology that they may not be able to develop themselves. And so, you know, it's a, people ask me, well, what's what's the investment environment like now in the United States? And I said, well, if I have to use one phrase, it would be challenging and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Because right now, you know, two years ago, I could predict how, if you were to do an investment in the U.S., what the threats, threat risks and vulnerabilities were, the asset that you were going to acquire, the threats in the risks associated with the acquirer, and then how the administration, and in the world that I deal with, Cifius. now here's something that's really interesting, you have an 11-agency group that operates on consensus. Mm -hmm. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) But we used to be able to predict with some precision and certainty how uh, both the economic agencies and the security agencies would line up. I think the biggest single change today is there is no daylight between the economic agencies and the security agencies as far as an open investment in climate and the need to protect national security. So there's a long-winded discourse to go from the '80s to today, but <laughs> many of the challenges we were trying to address we're, uh, were trying to address today, as far as you know, new technologies like artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, uh, ge- geonomics, and there are there a whole series of industries and, and even back to this basic microelectronics, where the the risks associated are not dissimilar, but the consequences are, are fairly large. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Thank you. Um, thank you, Andrew. Over to you, Carolyn. And yeah. Thank you. And um, it's in some ways a relief for me to have Somebody who's so steeped in Cepheus on here so he can answer all of the Cepheus questions <laughs> that might come up. Um, first, actually, I'm really glad that we got here um, into this building because I had not been in to see what they had done with the old Greyhound bus station. Right. Right. And it was uh, very interesting for those of you <laughs> who might not, who are, who are young and might not even know, it used to be the Greyhound bus station downstairs. Yep. Um, uh, Andrew, I, I just want to add, I mean, certainly I believe in the importance of free and open trade, um, but I think that that we have to add fair as a necessity in, into that equation, and one of the reasons that we are where we are is because we have had a system of free and open trade, and China has not had a system of, of free right. and open trade, and and you have to put fairness into the equation, and I, I went and looked... Um, our deficit. Although I recognize that some people don't think the deficit numbers matter, our trade deficit with China um, since it since it joined the WTO. So from 2002 to 2017, cumulatively is 4.2 trillion dollars. Um, if you take a look at that's that's in that's in goods, but if you take a look in goods and services, and services are supposed to be one of the areas of the economy where we um, really uh, provide a lot of value the deficit still cumulative over that period is $4 trillion. So it's not a huge difference between just merchandise goods and and, uh, trading goods and services. And while deficits don't indicate everything, they definitely indicate here that there's an imbalance in the relationship. Um, I I think it's really important. uh, While I respect the looking back at the 1980s, um, I think the important takeaway from all of that is the value of a comprehensive trade strategy? Um, I am always concerned when I when I hear people liken China to Japan, um, because I think that the that the the, the issue certainly that that um, Ivan mentioned about we are now facing a strategic competitor that's also an economic competitor is critically important. Um, the fact that that uh, scale, the sh- the sheer size of China and its economy, uh, differentiates it from Japan, and also the nature of the ch- Chinese government. I. I think that um, when we look at a different set of rules, China is playing by a different set of rules, one of the mistakes that has been made over the course of the past 30 years in our trade negotiations is that we have somehow gone into them thinking that China wants the same thing that we do and views the world in the same way that we do. And I think, again, if there's any lesson we need to have learned through all of this, it's that is not the case. They, they have a different, a different view. Um, China, the Chinese government is, is completely transparent in what it intends to do, and that's another thing that I would say that we have we have messed up over the years. They're not hiding what they intend to do. I mean, they put out a series of five-year plans. It's the 13th five-year plan now where they outline the economic steps, the sectors of their economy that they're intending to, to focus on. Um, Ivan mentioned... Made in China 2025, the whole concept of indigenous innovation and what the Chinese are trying to do. I mean, they're transparent. They say what it is they're going to do. I can't fault them for what they do. They are building their economy the way that they do. Um, I, I don't think that we have been particularly effective to date in addressing the challenges that they, that they have come up with. And um, I'll put in a pitch for the China Commission, which, which uh, our wonderful staff put out a, a paper in March on China's techno, uh, techno-nationalism toolbox. And I just want to quickly run through the list of the policy tools that China has used as it has been building its own economy and has been shutting us and other countries out of it. They use localization targets. They provide state funding for in- industry development. They provide a lot of government R&D funding. They, they have restrictions on government procure- procurement they, they focus on technology standards. They have um, not exactly a transparent regulatory process. Um, that they do foreign investment restrictions and import guidance. Um, they are trying to recruit and seeking successfully to recruit foreign talent. They are acquiring foreign technology, both through acquisitions and also through industrial espionage. So they have a lot of tools in the toolbox that they use that have raised concerns, which I think why we are where we are on the CFIUS debate too, which is, um, I know one of the issues that comes up is about joint ventures, that a lot of times what the Chinese government will do is what it can't do directly, it will do indirectly. So it's established investment funds um, that are trying to do some acquisitions that that are of serious concern. I'd also say that I think that the Chinese have been ahead of us in always seeing um, and acting uh, that economic security and national security are intertwined. We have had a tendency in this country to, to, to separate the two, that economic security is one thing, and national security, which is seen in kind of a traditional military security, is another, is another thing. And uh, the Chinese have seen those two, those two issues intertwined, and I think that we, ha- we have reached a stage where now we are seeing. I mean, it's just not possible to be militarily strong if you're economically weak, when you talk about issues about relating to the defense industrial base, that's it there specifically. And again, even the defense industrial base, uh, our whole defense base is, 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 is not just what it used to be. It is not just people making steel, making aluminum, making tanks, making bullets. This whole realm of innovation, which is the future of our economy, is, is very connected. Artificial intelligence, if you think about how the military is using artificial intelligence, how the Chinese government wants to use artificial intelligence. Look at robotics, look at nanotechnology. special technologies. All of those issues are both economic issues, but they are also national security issues, and we need to pay attention to them, and, and, and that's really the challenge. So, um, again, I would say that I think The Chinese government has been very transparent about what they're doing. Um, They have a a centralized economy. Um, We still have allergic reactions in this country when we talk about industrial policy. And, uh, you know.
2: I I, I totally agree with that. But I think what's interesting, how many people use Siri? Yeah.
1: Um,
2: Right? Yeah. I don't. Okay. (laughs) So you guys know that Siri was developed by DARPA. (laughs) Right. 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 Right, so if you look at most of the innovations that were in, in, and what I find interesting about this debate is, well, we're oh my god, China's got an industrial policy in China 2025, and I'm fairly familiar with that. You know, a lot of the innovations that we enjoy today came out of when we used to have an industrial policy. Right, right. I and mean, I grew up in Southern California where, you know, from Redondo Beach and Hawthorne all the way to the airport, to UCLA was an industrial policy that was really centered on it. Anybody watch Direct TV? You know, which you can thank the Defense Department for right. Direct TV right. and the satellite programs right. DirecTV. Direct right. TV. So I think, you know, we, we went through this process where, oh, government has no roles in in innovation and technology, and that's all coming out of Silicon Valley, but we kind of forget our own history, yeah. which was both a, you know, from National Defense Scholarships to the National Research Lab at Xerox Park in, in, in Palo Alto. Many of the things the Chinese are doing are basically copying what we did in the late 50s and 60s and 70s and mm-hmm. in, in, into the 80s. You know, that being said, then I think there is a legitimate role for us to a have a national strategy on technology, but B figure out you know are there instances and this is kind of what we do are there instances where Chinese investment presents an opportunity for us? I'll give you one example we did a transaction in the printed circuit board space the, really the last remaining power uh, printed circuit board manufacturer of any consequence in the United States. And they did an acquisition in Asia, Hong Kong-based entity, where the Hong Kong-based entity ended up owning a fairly sizable minority position in the company. But it ended up enabling them to become a more robust supplier for the aerospace and defense market. Because they sell printed circuit boards to Apple hammers them on cost and they service that out of Asia. They have six plants now in the U.S. devoted to printed circuit boards that go into the F-35. And having that ability to shift cost and do high volume manufacturing in Asia and then do specialty manufacturing and higher margin actually benefited um, both the U.S. economy but the defense industrial base. you know, there's always a little bit of nuance right. in in this issue.
1: Yeah, a, yes, we'll we'll jump right into going back and forth. Then, which is, I mean, it is interesting to me that you that you you mention um, how military technology in this country has led to civilian innovation. Or, so, exactly. I mean, these things that yeah. we use. Um, I, I think, frankly, we need to continue to invest in our military technology R and D, and I see some declining investment in certain sectors about that, but I think also when it comes to, to, to China, um, we have to be thinking about how civilian technology is being used for military uses, yep. so, it, so, it, so it goes both ways. It's not the, I'll use the word benign use of Siri, right. though, the news that has come out about Siri and Alexa and the fact that people can, can, people yes. can hack into it. I think was it, Sarah, or no, it was Kellyanne Conway who said, your, mic, your microwave can spy on you. <laughs> I mean, in effect, it can. Which Certainly I mean, your smart television. Yeah, yeah, yeah your smart there, television. Yeah. Mine turns yeah. itself on and off by itself sometimes and has to be unplugged to stop doing that. <laughs> um, so so, so there, there are all of those issues. And again, I mean, Ivan, I would ask, so print the, these printed circuit boards that, that are being used in the U.S. defense industry, right. um, how has China's defense industry benefited from, from also having access to that technology and, and both how they have benefited directly so but what they might be learning about how we use ours.
2: So uh, Did uh, they have to I'll do it. a self-promoting plug. <laughs> and I think that's really one of the benefits <coughs> of having a robust CFIUS process and an export control regime right. that probably needs to be updated for right. this century. Uh, what we were able to do in that situation was Create a secured subsidiary where there was no technology transfer from the US to China. So the China factories had no technology transfer. Right. Um, and then create a governance structure around that with cleared individuals who receive a counterintelligence brief every six months. You know, so, it, plus they're protected by the ITAR and export control regime. And I think that's where people who who structure these transactions, if you do it the right way, and the first thing that we do when we look at a transaction is what's potential technology transfer? And I think this is what the Congress is trying to solve in the new CFIUS legislation. How do we ensure that we don't do what, exactly what you're saying? It's transfer technology that gives the Chinese an ability to leapfrog where we are now, you know, either through a joint venture or through an outright acquisition how do we structure something with protections in place that enable us to take the benefit of foreign investment, foreign capital coming in while leveraging the opportunity to either expand a market in Asia uh, or expand a distribution network in Asia. So it's a, look, I I don't think, it's not straightforward. I think people who look at this as, you know, only one way. It was like, oh, we should be, we should have an open investment regime. When the Chinese require that you license your technology and you can only own forty nine percent of a Chinese entity, I don't think that's fair either. I mean, we really do need to have some balance here. Right. And I'm going to go back to my opening remarks, which is, it should be part of a comprehensive strategy. I mean, it was an omnibus trade and competitiveness act. It wasn't just reforming the trade laws. It was investing in Semitech. It was in, investing in, I mean, there were scholarships, there were um, worker retraining programs, and there was a foreign investment regime. And I think that comprehensive approach is probably where we should be headed today.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. Do we
2: see
0: any movement towards that from, from people in, in the administration or, or in Congress? Or is this just something that, that we're going to continue to do piecemeal here and there? Well what do you think i yeah. I was going to say i mean
1: I, I I agree that a comprehensive strategy is is critical. I mean these yeah. are complex issues, yeah. and you don't solve complex issues with one simple solution. Yeah. That said, i don't think the absence of a consensus on a comprehensive strategy should stop the individual pieces from moving forward because otherwise we're going to be waiting i mean i can can we can we do a comprehensive anything right now? Well, um, in in, 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 the, in this in this current con- uh, right. and in this political climate, I mean, yeah. I we're
2: going to build a comprehensive strategy. It's going to be beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and, the and then
1: and I mean, we we Andrew and I we were just yeah. talking briefly bef- before it started. That I mean, I, I agree that I think that our trade negotiators now are trying to have um, a strategic. Comprehensive approach to what they're trying to do, and with one tweet, the man at the top can throw the whole thing in disarray, and it has in fact done so. So, okay. it's it's um it's a it's a difficult it's a very difficult dynamic. And the
2: right. the irony of that tweet is as bizarre as it was, and I have to say, found it a little interesting. You know, having spent a number of years trying to understand the security risks related to Huawei and ZTE, right. Um, ED is also complex because the number of U.S. semiconductor companies that sell to ZTE, the number of European operators who have ZTE equipment, and what are the consequences for interconnecting? Uh, And yet, I mean, the behavior that commerce was lashing out at ZTE is a very important national security issue. And that was, I thought, what was strange was like the almost cavalier nature of not understanding that, you know, these companies can be used for offensive and aggressive purposes, not just in the United States, but more importantly, outside the United States. Right.
1: And I think that it raises, I mean, it does raise questions, again, both about the fact that it's been an identified intelligence threat, um, but also uh, about commitment to rule of law. I mean, it it was Uh, about sanctions at the same time that, um, essentially, the administration has made a decision that could be um, punishing companies. Um, I'm talking about Iran, but punishing companies of of U.S. allies, um, and and so you and know. so it's baffling yeah. for any. Well, yeah,
2: because yeah. we're not shy about imposing you know, major fines and penalties on European companies for violating the OFAC right, regime. Right, right, you know, There are several French banks that you know, bear the scars of that. I mean, this is even. More significant because of the you know, the telecommunications equipment space is so fundamental to national security right and um, in,
1: and and so embedded in our lives I mean we think of yeah. again uh, microwaves but you know Alexa and Siri and Fitbits and all of these all of these I, okay, well, I was, and, and
2: I was involved in the Alcatel-Lucent transaction 2006 and the Nokia, yeah. sub, subsequent Nokia transaction. When you think about 50% of the U.S. switch network were Lucent switches. And if yeah. you have the source code to that switch, mm-hmm. you have an ability to engage. In, no question the Chinese engage in industrial espionage. Mm-hmm. There's no question that they are aggressive on cyber. Look, some of our allies are aggressive on cyber. Yeah yeah and and you know
0: it's it's also a key part of you talk about for our national security but for the the chinese uh, government a key part of their own internal security is the yeah. ability to to be able to monitor telecommunications and and communications yeah. networks and everything like that yeah. so it it's a a very important thing, and, and uh, I think there's still a lot more of that ZTE story to come out. Uh, we, we don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays out and what, what's next on that. Um, I, 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 one question I have for, for each of you is, is why now? Uh, why is this uh, the, all of this coming to a head now? Is this just simply a case of, uh, I think there was an Axia story a, a couple of months ago that, that president said, where are my tariffs? I want my tariffs. Uh, is this just simply, you know, everybody, all the staff in the White House looking for any leverage they can get uh, that could move towards a tariff uh, in any way? Uh, I, I tend to think on the, the steel tariffs that that may be what the background is. But Look, on the 301 tariffs and, and everything, why is this something that, that's coming up now? Why is CFIUS reform happening now? Is it just, you know, built up over the I, years, I, I or? think,
2: look, it's been building for a number of years. I think if you look at the last <coughs> year of the Obama administration, the mm-hmm. PCAST report on semiconductors is right. a good example of Chinese uh, targeting the microelectronics industry and what are the security implications? And then how did the DIUX report, tail end of the Obama administration, what are it's the implications of yeah. Chinese investment, either minority investors or early stage investors in technology? How did he win the election?
1: We're betray. still trying to answer that. <laughs> no, but they,
2: uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, yep. Ohio, yep. Wisconsin, yep. You know, areas that have been uh, impacted by what is considered to be you know inequitable trade policies, yeah. I think this has been, it's, build, been building. it's been building for a number of years, and then the other thing that I find interesting is the frustration, particularly the u s tech community, with gaining access to china
1: mm-hmm. Well and I've, so I want to take us up, just you know broaden this just a little bit and say first, I completely agree that it has been I've been doing. U.S.-China issue since June 4, 1989, Tiananmen Square changed the changed the path of my sort of, of my life in terms of the policies that I've been working on, and and you know, starting back in the 1990s when people started raising concerns about Chinese practices. I remember the machinists did a report. I don't know, maybe 93 or 94 jobs on the wing about transfer, forced transfer of production. Of Boeing airplanes from Wichita, Kansas, over to over to China. So, I mean, people were seeing some of this going on, and I think that politically, the fact that communities in this country have suffered um, uh, a lot of people in in you know in sheer industries are gone. Footwear is gone. Textiles are gone. Um, steel is gone in a lot of places, and and I think that um, we have as a society failed the people. It's 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 you know, people can say, well, these people all need to be prepared to work in the economy of the future, but not everybody is gonna be a coder or a programmer, yeah. and we have not done enough for job retraining and creating new opportunities in green energy, for example. Mm-hmm. I will I'll put in one of one of your things. But I, I also have seen um, the debate on US China issue shift over the course of probably the past ten years. And Part of what I think we're missing in the bigger U.S.-China issue is, what are our strategic interests in this relationship? Because we have seen so many decisions be made that have benefited one industry or one sector and <laughs> another. You know, I mean, every time the, the Chinese used to send a delegation over um, during the MFN debates in the 1990s, all of a sudden there would be sales of Boeing airplanes yeah. or promises of, you know, purchases of Boeing airplanes. And then Boeing would be trying to make sure that nothing... Nothing complicated. Not not complicated, but but nothing damaged the U.S.-China relationship. So there were other issues that were not raised, and I think probably starting about eight or ten years ago, the business community started recognizing that they were not seeing the returns that they were going that they that they expected. So all of these issues about not having access. Having their IP stolen, and and you know it's that puts the companies in a very difficult position. They can't speak out publicly, um, identifying themselves because there will be blowback, and they'll lose the benefits they have, or they'll lose market access. Um, but but there have been growing concerns, and we have seen those. And I think that that also helped to fuel, sort of why now, which is mm-hmm. that the them a lot of the advocates for what I would call an unfettered U.S.-China relationship. Have, have not exactly seen the returns that they were expecting.
0: Right. Uh, well, why, don't, why don't we open it up for, for questions from the audience? So uh, we'll have a, a microphone going around. Uh, I, I'd ask that you uh, identify yourself uh, before you ask and, and uh, phrase your questions in the form of a question, not a <laughs> statement. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, right here, we'll, we'll start with you.
3: Herb Rose, um, One of the issues that has bothered me for some years, and it continues to go on unabated, it seems, is uh, the theft of intellectual property and infringement of intellectual property. Um, the TPP um, was supposed to resolve. That was one of a number of issues that was supposed to re- be resolved by that. Uh, wouldn't we have been now be in a better situation had we not pulled out of that agreement?
0: Well, I'll, I'll jump in and say, so TPP, China wasn't a part of it. Uh, it was in, in many ways uh, aimed at, at setting the rules instead of China. I personally think we would have been much better uh, had we been part of TPP, because then we could have been part of a, a whole block to be negotiating these instead of unilaterally trying to, to do it. But any, okay. anything to add on TPP?
2: Yeah, you know, look, I think the the multilateral trading system has, for the most part, served the national interest very well. Yeah. But it's also a legacy of we built a system in which we made the system sustaining concessions to keep the system going. And when you were dealing with Japan or Europe or yeah. maintaining an alliance, I think that was important. Um, you know, on balance, yeah, you know, TPP and tightening the rules around intellectual property protection, some market access. On balance, probably positive. The but the elephant in the room is the Chinese have a different perspective on intellectual property, and you know they and. And if you're a U.S. tech company and you want access to the China market, the cost of admission is licensing your technology.
1: So, um, I think that that TPP was not the, sort of the failure of TPP or the collapse of it uh, legislatively was not just um, um, a reflection of concerns about TPP. I think it I think it also had to carry the water for what people had seen as problems with NAFTA and some of the other trade agreements. So Mm -hmm. I think it was um, a victim of its time and place. Um, uh, It is interesting, I just want to speak specifically on IP theft, that one of the only successful examples we saw of Chinese progress on um, IP protection was in the early 1990s, I think it was when Carla Hills put out a target list of Chinese products, that we're going to be um, sanctioned can, uh, or not, not, not gonna, going to, yeah. Um, if, if the Chinese government did not start doing something cracking down on, on intellectual property theft and actually um, there was some progress that was made then. Uh, so that was interesting to me. It was an example of you, you, you just go out there and you say, we're not going to put up with this. We're going to do something about it. And, and there was a response. Um, it's interesting as we, as we look at the WTO and China's entry into the WTO, that, um, you know, the WTO, there, there were questions at the time about whether the WTO was going to change China or China was going to change the WTO, and I would say that the answer, frankly, there is both. I mean, the WTO was intended to be a dispute resolution mechanism. The Chinese have now turned it into a situation where if you file a dispute there, it's a hostile act, which is not how it was before. Um, So I think that there are a lot of things that need to be done. I'm going to question a little bit, Ivan, that the Chinese have a different perspective on intellectual property, you know, for the longest time, again, in the 1990s. um, So I'm not going back to the 80s, but to the 90s. (laughs) um, And, and, you know, in, in the 2000s, we were told, well, the Chinese will be better on IP once they have their own... IP that they need to be protecting. And they have been filing a lot of patents. Right. So I'm not convinced it's a different perspective as much as they realized they could cut down on R&D costs and get access to technology that I, they I was wanted. trying to be nice by saying a, di- <laughs> a different perspective. What I really like is
2: they, they don't share the same Western appreciation for patent protection
1: well, and rule of law. Except the question is, well, they don't for sure on rule of law. The question is, well, that whether they... Will start indeed seeing um, value to patent protection as they have more patents to protect themselves. And inside of China, we're seeing some of that.
2: But. To me, I think the the interesting question is, put the patent and IP protection. There are people who make a very good living doing IP litigation in this country, and yeah. you know, there are big you know, Korea versus U.S., U.S. versus U.S. I mean, IP disputes right. are uh, part of doing business. Right. I think standard-setting bodies. So if you look at the development of 5G and how this, the Chinese will play in standard-setting mm-hmm. bodies, and you know, do Huawei, put C T aside, does Huawei drive a 5G standard? And what are the security implications for that? I think it's something that we ought to be paying attention to.
1: Hmm.
2: I mean, the IP disputes are going to be there. It is very difficult to do business in china it's very difficult to protect ip it, you have to be constantly vigilant but i think you know this standard setting body and to the extent that huawei has done things like use the china development bank to wire most of africa right. and then create allies within the standard right. global standard setting bodies because they have a huawei communication system I think that's something that, from a national security perspective, we need to be So, so So
0: what, what's at stake there? Can, can you explain that a little bit further? How, how does that... So they set the standard for 5G, and then...
1: Well, I mean, the, the implications... When you already think about how, how much um, sort of everything we do is tied to communications mm-hmm. now, everything we do in our daily lives, um, the implications, when you think about them that this move to have smart cities, for example, Um, you know, the the water, the transportation system, the infrastructure of cities and how they run um, is supposed to be facilitated by 5G. And I don't know how comfortable I am that a Chinese company yeah, propri- would be providing the, the sure. telecommunications sure. infrastructure so, so have, that provides the water provide or the electricity. Backdoor access. Backdoor access, or, yeah. Or something um, like that. And, and there's another issue yeah. but, that you mentioned, but that I think we also need to keep in mind too, which is um, the access of Chinese companies to the deep pockets of the Chinese government. Yeah. And so yeah. they can. Huawei, for example, when, it's, when, when some small town in Colorado is putting out an RFP, for, for um, being wired um, American companies that would be able to do that don't have the competitive advantage that the Chinese companies do that have access so they, they can underbid and they are they are you know they are doing that and
2: they're, they're ruthless on pricing
1: yes they're ruthless no, on pricing
2: they're not great on service you know what <laughs> that, if
1: you are a small town governor I, in the Midwest <laughs> or in the West or anywhere and you well, have got to answer to your constituents yeah you 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 go with the cheapest.
2: If you're the a poor nation in the Middle East or Africa, you Absolutely. go with the cheapest. I Absolutely. think you know we do have to focus on one thing. I've been whacking Huawei today, but on innovation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know they are. Their gear used to be knockoff. Their gear used to be you know. Not as high quality. They are now high quality and right. very innovative and cheap. Right which right. is so a hard, competitive hard to threat be. to yeah. the
1: uh, Western But how much of their innovation has been because of the access to the Chinese policies that have, you know, I mean, again, okay. telecommunications is one of the identified sectors of the Chinese government, and they throw all of these benefits at, um, you know, Rand did cheap a report. land. Yeah. To,
2: yeah. Rand did a report in 2005, and they talked about the digital triangle between the... Chinese government and Chinese industry. I think that holds true today. Mm. I think where some of the Chinese companies get in trouble here in the US, I like to tell people in China, don't tell the US government the story you think they want to hear. You're better off just telling them the story. Um, the notion that Mr. Ren didn't serve in the signal intelligence group in China, you know, all of a sudden, they said, well, no, he's just a civil engineer. Well, for the other state-owned enterprises, they all came out of the same unit. And it's not dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Like Israel, a lot of the tech innovation all comes out of the 8200 unit in the, Israel, in the mm-hmm. IDF. Same thing in China, but you know, Chinese can't bring themselves to say, yeah, there's this symbiotic relationship. Right, right. I saw a question back here, and then we'll
0: go uh, there and then here.
3: So, my question is, a Pohan reporter from the Epoch Times, uh, United States. The question is to do with so, last year, President Trump blocked the um, Chinese attempt to purchase Lattice Semiconductor. I'm not sure yeah. if you're pronouncing it right. But some Chinese publications, just recent in a few days, they talk about, they posted about, well, you blocked that, but now that we have actually acquired the same technology from purchasing South Korean and Chinese, Right. Well, not directly, but they, they basically use a lot of money to hire people from Taiwan and South Korea, and th- their publications are saying that they have achieved the same breakthrough as if, from, from the last, the, as if they had purchased the lattice. I mean, wh- where does this end? Like, even if the United States blocks sales like the la- lattice, the Chinese they go through they go to South Korea, they go to Taiwan, they go to the right. United Kingdom. How do we prevent those? I I think you raise
2: a really critical point. So from the US European perspective, we're seeing increasing cooperation between the EU and EU member countries in the US on national security reviews. So there was a German semiconductor transaction involving a Chinese entity where there were US assets and the US security community went to the Germans and, and together they blocked the transaction. I do a lot of French and U.S. national security reviews, very similar with shared interest in trying to block Chinese acquisitions of certain technology. I think Asia, and Taiwan in particular, is very difficult. But, look, you know, FPGA technology that Lattice had It's something that's been identified as a weakness in China. There's only one small company that knows how to do FPGAs. And I think as part of the industrial plan, Chinese are very creative and very persistent. And yeah, you've pointed out a weakness in the system. So there are Taiwanese (laughs) and South Korean manufacturers or even some Japanese manufacturers where you you can access that technology.
1: I think you point out um, a a really significant thing, which is this increased cooperation, too, between um, the U.S., the E.U., and the E.U. member countries on these issues, because the Chinese government has been very good over the years at sort of doing, dividing, and conquering. For example, again, I go back to the 1990s and the MFN debates. You know, they would threaten to buy Airbus planes instead of Boeing airplanes, and all of a sudden, people would fall in line. And and so... um, It it is important and significant that that cooperation is happening. Uh, I think, particularly in you know, Taiwan is in a very difficult position. Um, But I, you know, they they are reliant on U.S. security, Um, and I think that it needs to be communicated um, to them the concerns that are being raised about some of these transfer of technologies.
4: Eva Hampel, uh, U.S. Council for International Business. We're a trade association, so I have a question from the business perspective about um, the intersection between economic and national security that was addressed in the beginning, yep. um, something that has really come out through the discussions around firma, the CFIUS legislation, of course. And um, from a business perspective, the v- concern has been this discussion that's occasionally snuck in about economic protectionism, um, which sometimes from from certain points of view seems to be used interchangeably with economic security. Um, And um, I just wanted to hear your view on that of where you see the dangers of that to the US economy as opposed to um, ensuring our ability to be able to be competitive in the global marketplace.
2: So I don't think that we're in danger of declaring yogurt national security issue. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unlike my colleagues in France. Um, <laughs> for them, it might be. <laughs> <yeah>. Look, <laughs>
1: for,
2: the, for the most part, CFIUS, over the years, has done a good job identifying legitimate and real national security threats. and you know, People focus a lot on transactions that are blocked, but they don't focus a lot on transactions that are approved with the appropriate structure to protect national security that enables the US to maintain, maintain an open investment climate. Um, and I think that's my, my criticism of CFIUS and my criticism of some of the legislation is there's not enough triage to really focus on legitimate national security concerns. I mean, the most difficult transactions that I have done, some of them have been French and Israeli and not Chinese. Right? I mean, the Alcatel-Lucent transaction involving Bell Labs, the innovation in Bell Labs, the criticality of Lucent switches to our network, some past French behavior, you know, I mean the French are very good at helping their industry in a way that the U.S. government may not
1: appreciate.
2: Um, or do itself. Or yeah. do itself, yeah. I mean mm-hmm. we don't...
1: Industrial espionage. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was I was trying to you come being up with a nice U.S. To <laughs> so it's good. that I'll be here uh, yeah. <laughs> say the things. But we but we're able to create structures in place, you know, source code escrow and visitation policies and and creation of separate subsidiaries to really welcome and enable that investment. Now China presents this unique problem. Because at the end of the day, when the French and the Israelis are allies. You know, and there are structures that we have adopted over the years, and I've done Italian state-owned entities, French state-owned entities, Israeli companies with connections to the 8200. Uh, But they're all allies, and there's a baseline of trust. And the the problem I think this administration is having is, do you have entities in China that you can trust to comply with national security agreements? And Russia as well. We did Russian investment in the U.S., four years ago, that I can guarantee you today those transactions wouldn't yeah. be approved.
1: Mm. Yeah. No, and, I mean, it's, again, you sort of get to the nature of, um, of the Chinese government and what we think their longer-term intentions are. I mean, they, they, President Xi has made no uh, bones about talking about the rise of China and the China Dream and, and um, sort of moving, a- again, into a more Marxist orientation, at least in what they say, if not what they do. Um, I think, Ava, though, I mean, you really put your finger on sort of what the whole issue here and, and why, we, yeah. why we were asked to come here, which is um, sort of an open market system versus protectionism. And I think that we have got to thread the needle somewhere in between. And the Chinese government itself is enormously protectionist. Uh, it's, it, it is running an economy where massive sectors are protected and and so you know i I, it, I don't know how we balance the way that we we believe things should work with the way that they are doing things which again i think answers why we are where we are today that yeah. um, we haven't done it very successfully to this point
2: i just think it's far more nuanced than we either have open trade yeah,
1: or, or protectionism right.
2: yeah right right
0: uh, you know and and the president is often given a lot of latitude on <coughs> <and> national security <coughs> issues, so there's, a, there's too often, I think, a temptation to just label anything as national security. You know,
2: it, I mean, Can you guys it, tell you that know. I was a protege of Bob Whitehead? So <laughs> <laughs> you, you know... It, all
1: it, of the, all yeah. Of yeah. the use of these t- inflammatory terms on me. No, but <laughs> I, I mean, I'm going to
2: defend Bob in, you know, because I think <coughs> that what you are seeing is somebody who is a very an astute trade lawyer and an astute yeah. negotiator. And I've, I negotiate for a living, I guess. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when you really want to get <laughs> a deal, your leverage is gone. And there's a famous story about Bob when he was deputy USTR in the uh, Japan Steel <laughs> negotiations. And he was handed a term sheet. That was translated was supposed to reflect the understanding that they had just come to. And of course, the term sheet was completely different than the understanding. And Bob, as <coughs> the, the agreement's being explained to him, starts folding it, and folding it, and folds it into a paper airplane and flies it across the table and walks out. And in Japan, he's been known as the Missile Man ever since. <laughs> but they ended up going back to the table and getting you know, a pretty decent agreement. And I think that. One of the things, you know, for too long, trade negotiation was a stepchild to some <laughs> larger geopolitical issues. Yeah. And now you, and where I started today, you see this melding between the national security community and the economic uh, agencies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think we need consistency. Yeah. <coughs> and that is something that Bob is trying, but some of it is out of his control. Yeah.
0: I think, last question here, and, and then we'll...
2: Uh...
5: <coughs> no. uh, Leah from VOA. Um, you know, President Trump uh, tweeted that China and the United States are working well on trade. And he says uh, it will all work out. <coughs> the Chinese delegation uh, headed by the Vice Premier Liu He is in town right now talking with the uh, U.S. side about the trade. Issues. Uh, I'm just wondering if the panelists can talk a little bit about um, what might come out of it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, like crystal ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, I, the, I don't know if, if I can say. If follow up uh, a question, I'm also wondering. We we talked about this uh, ZTE mm. treat by President Trump. Um, I wonder if you have any theories about what prompted that change of heart. Uh, what kind of people are suspecting that China like, might. Have made some major concessions. Um, what could that be?
2: I mean, anything I say would be speculation. Yeah,
0: I mean, <laughs> at this point, I think we, there's, there's so much speculation I've seen and, and everything. It, you know, we hope it all goes well, uh, you know, but
2: I, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I the president think does value his relationship with Shia. Yeah. And you know, yep. I've, one thing that I've witnessed over the years, he used to say all politics is local. But all politics is personal. You know, I mean, various people sitting in various jobs change how an it's agency yeah. operates. And I think the personal relationship between... Go you know, back to the Obama administration, I think the personal relationship between uh, Merkel and Obama mm-hmm. you know, had a major impact on policy. Yeah. So
1: uh, I,
2: yeah. I can't tell you how it's good. I, it, yeah. I don't
1: it think... Happened. I mean, I, and, and the motivations. You know, there's a lot of speculation out there um, that the president likes to do deals and might not be as aware of the specifics of the, um, of the, the specific, of the, all of the issues that go along with the specific issues. Um, so I don't think we know. I mean, I no. was interested last night to see somebody saying that the market was responding favorably, that there wasn't going to be a trade war. <laughs> and I thought, man, the market is really hitching on a tweet. And I don't think any of us know what's what's going to happen and what's driving it right now.
0: Well, thank you all, and and thanks to our our panelists, Carolyn and Ivan, and and thanks for you all for coming, and join me in a round of applause. Thank you. (laughs) This will all be posted on our website, AmericanSecurityProject.org, and you can learn more about all of our work uh, there, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and all the rest. Thank you.